The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. They, in response to the intrusion against their users' devices, spent time coming up with fixes to their users' devices that they had losses even if they don't own the computers. That's kind of a second way of, of thinking about it. And I, I, I just think that loss under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and damage has to be relating to the computer owner operator, the person whose device it is or who has ultimate control over the device as the end, end user. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 3rd, 2021. Late last month, Apple sued the Israeli technology firm NSO Group under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That's the federal law that criminalizes computer hacking and provides a civil cause of action for hacking victims. NSO Group is primarily known for its Pegasus spyware software, which it provides to many governments for their law enforcement and national security investigations. Apple is suing NSO Group because many of the devices that Pegasus is used against are Apple iOS devices. Apple's lawsuit is just the latest in what has been several bad years for NSO Group, which has come under increasing scrutiny, most notably for the use of its software in the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi government, and for allegations that its products are used to commit a wide range of human rights abuses by authoritarian governments around the world. To help me understand the merits of Apple's lawsuit, as well as its implications for the spyware industry and cybersecurity norms more generally, I spoke with Oren Kerr, professor of law at the University of California Berkeley Law School, and Asaf Lubin, associate professor of law at the Indiana University Moorer School of Law. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 3rd. Oren Kerr and Asaf Lubin on Apple v. NSO Group. Asaf, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of what the NSO group is, what it does, and what recent entanglements, let's say, it's had with both the U.S. government and the U.S. legal system? Absolutely. So interestingly, if you uh, were reading the news in the last six months, you probably could not have evaded learning a little bit about the NSO So what I thought I'll do in answering your question is maybe give a brief timeline of kind of previously on in the context of the NSO saga, which begins in June 2021, when the NSO, almost predicting what will ensue, publishes its first ever transparency and responsibility report, which should credit it's the first company in in this industry to publish such a report. And in the report, they acknowledge for the first time that their solutions, namely their Pegasus solution, the company's signature spyware, which is installed on both iOS and Android machines and provides essentially access 
to anything from text messages to passwords, that has been utilized by their clients to violate fundamental human rights. Uh, but the company then moves on to make the case for why its products are nonetheless necessary and have helped prevent terrorism and child pornography, and why its human rights compliance mechanism is sufficient to address this problem, noting that between May 2020 through April 2021, it rejected about 15% of potential new opportunities to license its Pegasus surveillance program over human rights concerns that could not be resolved. Amnesty International, in reading this report, concluded that it was not more than a sales brochure and a missed opportunity for this company to actually come clean and offer itself up for actual transparency and accountability. And then a month later, the big story comes out. That's the July Pegasus Project, in which Forbidden Stories, a Paris-based journalism nonprofit, together with Amnesty International, identified over 50,000 numbers that have been suspected to have been the target of surveillance through the Pegasus software. And together with a consortium of news and media companies, they engaged in forensic analysis that confirmed, indeed, that many of these numbers were the targets of such surveillance. And so in that context, what was really interesting is that countries that were identified as the potential clients of these tools included, among others, Morocco and South Africa and Egypt and Uganda and Algeria, not exactly your human rights complying states. And um, their analysis further confirmed that these countries targeted activists, political opponents, foreign politicians, and diplomats, including also current and former heads of state. And I think that that was what was one of the triggering incident for many of the kind of ramifications that followed which included investigations in many European countries and in the United States over the actions of NSO Group. In fact, in August, I facilitated a virtual event at Indiana University, which brought together 30 law professors and computer science professors to meet with the then CEO and general counsel of NSO Group. And I highlight this point just because I think that at the time, the company was still very much in the charms offensive phase of its activities, trying to kind of spin and control the narrative as it was unfolding in front of its very eyes. The next bombshell comes in November 3rd, when the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security, what is known as the BIS, released a final rule adding four foreign companies to the entity list for engaging in activities that are contrary to the national security or foreign policy interest of the United States. And a so group, and as well as another Israeli company called Kandiru, were among the four that were added. What's important to note about that is that they were added to the entity list, not to the specially designated nationals list or the SDN list. The latter is the real prohibitionary trade. You can't engage with these companies at all list, whereas the entity list just requires you to acquire a special license from the U.S. Commerce Department and there will be a presumption of denial of your request. So essentially, they were signaling that um, they will not authorize trade, and that could really make it life difficult for NSO Group will not be able to, say, contract with cloud providers in the U.S. for running its own business. The last thing I'll just mention is what happened on November 8th, which was the decision of the Ninth Circuit in the WhatsApp case that was issued two years prior, the complaint. And in that decision, in a three to zero decision, the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuits rejected on NSO's motion to dismiss WhatsApp's claim 
that NSO violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, NSO's defense, which was the basis for the motion to dismiss, was that it was subject to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act as a sovereign entity or an agent of a sovereign entity. And the court concluded that NSO is not entitled to that protection, nor even potentially subject to common law uh, sovereign immunity principles, although it left that in, as an open-ended question because it concluded that a proper analysis begins and ends with the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act for which uh, NSO was not a subject, which leads us to this November 23rd Apple complaint. And the only thing I'll say here, and I'll stop talking, is just that the Apple complaint comes at a very opportune time. Not only is this two years nearly to the date from the filing of the WhatsApp case, but it follows and echoes what the U.S. Commerce Department said in its designation. And it sets the scene for a broader kind of fight that aims at the heart of ethics and values for the surveillance industry, which I'm assuming we're going to spend most of today talking about. Excellent. Thank you very much for that very useful background. So with that, let me turn to you, Oren, and let's talk about the lawsuit itself. Now, what precisely does it allege that NSO Group has done, and in particular with respect to Apple, which is the plaintiff here, you know, rather than, let's say, the, the kind of typical plaintiff in a civil 1030 suit, which is the individual or organization whose device itself has been compromised? Yeah, so a little bit of context here. There'd be a really simple civil suit and a really simple criminal case under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act if the person who is hacked sues the person who hacked them. And that's kind of the core of the statutes. And that's kind of, you know, that would be that would be the dog bites man story here. And so where this becomes the man bites dog part is that instead it is Apple, which does not own any of the computers that were hacked, suing NSO, which at most was aiding and abetting the hacking under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, Section 1030A4 and Section 1030A5. And then there's also a California state cause of action and a breach of contract claim. And so what's unusual about this is that parts of the complaint sort of sound like a typical 1030 complaint. You hacked me, but it's not you hacked me, it's you hacked them. And then what's novel about this, and I think probably just wrong as a matter of law, is Apple trying to claim that they can sue not on behalf of their customers, but because Apple has an interest in their customers' computers because the terms of service of iOS say that technically they Apple claims ownership in the operating system. That seems to be their claim. And I I doubt I doubt it works. I mean, I'm sure this is a good press release and it makes Apple's doing something and it probably has all these symbolic roles. But as a lawsuit, I think it's got a, a you know, it starts off with a really big problem that Apple is suing and Apple does not own the computers that were hacked. So I want to get into the into the details of the 1030 issue, but first I want to respond or ask a question on the, so the last bit you said, which is that this is kind of good PR for Apple, but but not much else. And, and so, you know, it occurred to me reading the complaint and the commentary about it is that I'm also a little puzzled on what Apple exactly is trying to accomplish here. You know, l- let's assume for a moment that it's legal theory is meritorious. It may not be. We'll get to that in a second. But let's assume that it, in fact, can sue under 1030. It's not alleging particularly big damages, um, certainly not for a company of Apple size, which on any given day is the largest company by market capitalization in the world. It it wants injunctive relief, though I, I wonder 
how much that really is possible given that NSO group is like sort of a foreign company and mostly operates outside the United States and certainly headquartered outside the United States. So, Oren, it sounds like you think that this really is mostly just a PR exercise. I'm curious, Asaf, whether you agree with that or you think there is actually some some substantive legal objective here that Apple is trying to accomplish. I think it's enough to just read their press release from November 23rd, which is titled, Apple sues NSO Group not to bring justice against NSO Group, but rather to curb the abuse of state-sponsored spyware. And in fact, if you look at the first sentence in the complaint, it says that defendants are, quote, notorious hackers, amoral 21st century mercenaries. I think this tells you everything you need to know about what this is about. And I think that there are some interesting designations that Apple is engaging here by calling this a state-sponsored surveillance technology company that is implicating Israel, not just the NSO group. But it also tells you that really what this is about is fighting at this value battle that I was alluding to before. It's about setting through a legal proceeding a broader battle against the privatization of surveillance and the use of these technology companies by governments and and government-related entities to engage in these sorts of foreign surveillance operations. I I think that if, if this is a viable cause of action, then for a company like Apple, I would assume this is a pretty cool thing to be able to do because the people who use Apple devices don't know they've been hacked and in any individual case, and it hurts your product if it's sort of generally known that your products can be hacked. And if you, the product manufacturer, can go into court and sue the hackers who are hacking your customers, not based on any individual sort of one-off, like here is the one case this happened, but in some sort of general sense, then you're kind of you know acting as a protector of your clients. You're protecting your product's reputation in the market. You may be protecting the security of your product. I, I can see all sorts of business reasons why this is like a really cool thing if it has legal merit. I just I just think the fact that Apple doesn't own the computers means that the suit just doesn't have the merit. So, so let, let's let's talk about that. You know, you alluded in your kind of previous comment that that the hook that Apple is using is the fact that it claims, uh, in its terms of service, to own the operating system. And and you know, in your tweet about this, you, you highlighted paragraph seventy of the complaint. So, for all of the ten thirty nerds that are following along at home. Um, Apple has the following sentence in the complaint, and this, in some sense, is the most important sentence in this entire complaint, because it's the thing that's supposed to get Apple, supposed to basically create standing and jurisdiction, which is that Apple retains ownership of its operating system software pursuant to its software license agreements. Now, Oren, you sound like you are skeptical that that is doing what Apple wants it to do, but let me play devil's advocate. One of the notable features of Apple devices by contrast to, let's say, Android devices, is that Apple has much more ongoing and pervasive control over its devices than other companies do. It's designed them that way. Um, And so when you have an iPhone, you bought an iPhone, but you're really kind of leasing 5% of this otherwise closed computing system that Apple has a lot of residual control over. So given that fact, and even that this really is a product differentiator, you know, that some people really like, other people don't. And this is the reason I use Android devices, because I don't like how much control Apple has over its devices. But a lot of people do. So why isn't that enough for Apple to say, look, 
these are all kind of our devices. We're willing to own that. And because of that, we are entitled to sue when people hack our stuff. I mean, I think it, it's not enough because Section 1030 is about computers uh, and who owns the computer and who's protecting the computer. And then it can be somebody who has control over the computer and their data, their files. I mean, it's basically the language and concepts from Van Buren, the Supreme Court's first Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case from June, is that the CFAA is about protecting the privacy of data, protecting the privacy of computers. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's about this sort of gates up versus gates down, going around the gates to get to the private information on a device. And Apple isn't saying, you know, you hacked our data. It's you sort of, we have files that we wrote that you use to get to somebody else's data. And we say we own that so we can sue. I mean, I, I guess it's an argument, but it, it strikes me as a weak argument um, because it's it's sort of playing with, oh, we put something in terms of service and we're, therefore we're relying on it. And to the extent it's just relying on something written in a terms of service, it's just, it doesn't accurately reflect whose data it is and whose computer it is uh, in a way that I think the statute recognizes. There's also a second possible way of interpreting the complaint because remember, you know, the complaint is not a full legal briefing. There's Tons of in the complaint about how amazing Apple is and how terrible NSO is and fine, except all that. But uh, um, there's not a, like an explicit legal theory in the complaint. But to the extent you can kind of tease out what they're thinking, they, they may also be arguing that because they, in response to the intrusion against their users' devices, spent time coming up with fixes to their users' devices that they had losses even if they don't own the computers. That's kind of a second way of, of thinking about it. And I, I, I just think that loss under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and damage has to be relating to the computer owner operator, the person whose device it is or who has ultimate control over the device as the end, end user. So I, it's a possible second theory, but I also just kind of get stuck on it. It, just, it seems to me that's not what this statute is about. Thanks for bringing that second theory up because that was going to be the next question for you from me. And I do want to just read the relevant provision of 1030 because I think it's sort of helpful. So 1030 is mostly a criminal statute, but then there's the subsection G, which creates a civil cause of action. And the first sentence of that is any person who suffers damage or loss by reason of a violation of this section, section 1030, may maintain a civil action against the violator to obtain compensatory damages and injunctive relief or other equitable relief. So it, it does seem that at least the language of 1030 could plausibly be read broadly enough to encompass what Apple is arguing. But Orrin, it sounds like, you know, based on the kind of background, maybe tort assumptions that 1030 was written against and just the purpose of the statute in, in your understanding, you're skeptical that that those words damage or loss by reason of a violation encompass this kind of second order reputational damage. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of case law in the civil context about what kind of loss counts and how closely connected to the use of the computer it actually is. And that gist of that case law, mostly district court opinions, so not, not anything binding, but still kind of relatively uniform, is that the loss has to be something directly related to repairing the machine. It can't be like, you know, we had 
a meeting and we flew all of the board of directors together to talk about how much this hack might hurt our company or something like that. Like that's, that's not fixing the computer. It's gotta be directly about the computer. Now, Apple could say, well, we are fixing the devices in the sense that when we come up with a way of improving security for all devices, we will do that as a way of thwarting this particular attack. That would be their claim. But they're not, it's not their computer. <laughs> and so the fact that they're doing this on behalf of the ultimate users, I think, I, I, I find it hard to see how Apple as this sort of company in charge of the you know, millions, uh, hundreds of millions of devices, how they're kind of have an interest in all of those devices. And in effect, it seems to me what Apple's trying to do is sort of become the government for purposes of Section 1030. Like the, Section 1030 is primarily a criminal statute. So the United States as a political entity can bring criminal cases on behalf of users. And of course, the United States does not need a specific interest in a computer, it's just that's the government, right? They're playing that role in criminal law as the sort of overarching polity representing the people and the interest that the, the criminal statute represents. And then there's individual users who suffered losses to their own property. And so Apple is sort of, in a sense, trying to put itself in the position of the government for all Apple devices, where like they're the company that's in charge of all this. So they get to kind of almost bring the suit that they would want the government to bring on behalf of users because it's their operating system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, 
they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. We've seen this in the cybersecurity space a lot, the, the kind of the private attorney general by major tech giants kind of stepping in where the government is not doing its job. So another example of that is uh, private action by Microsoft to take down botnets around the globe using injunctive relief in the courts. So, so in that sense, I think that Apple and, and Facebook, WhatsApp uh, are treading kind of similar waters here. But I also want, uh, kind of am curious or in, to hear more of your thinking about Kind of, what is a smartphone now nowadays as a computer, and to what extent is a smartphone and the ecosystem surrounding a smartphone making it different from the perspective of identifying the rights and obligations of Apple? In the sense that when I sell you an iPhone, if I don't provide you with regular patching and regular security features within a few months or years, the the iPhone is useless. 
uh, if I don't continuously update it to provide you with uh, responses to all kinds of uh, faults, it loses its value. So in that sense, I am, I, I understand that I don't own the phone, but I am dr- dramatically and directly involved in the universe that is ensuring the phone's continued value. Is that, is that not a, a way of kind of coming around this? I mean, it may be a way of approaching like the moral role of the company or thinking about what tech companies should see their continuing obligations as to customers. I just don't think that has an interplay with this particular statute. I mean, the statute is a computer intrusion statute, and there's no obligation of anyone to keep other people from hacking you. Under the statute, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a crime if you hack someone and um, if you've been hacked, you can sue the hacker. And that's that's the framework of this statute. I don't think that broader ecosystem and sense of moral obligations has like a natural payoff in the in the statute that Congress enacted. Oren, let me let me ask you a question about the broader legal implications of Apple's position here. Because one thing that struck me reading this complaint was how different and and opposite Apple's position here is to the posture it took in 2015 and 2016 when it was engaged in some high-profile disputes with the U.S. government over uh, whether it could be forced under the All Writs Act to help the government unlock iPhones. And I'm thinking here not of the fight over the San Bernardino iPhone, which involved some other issues, but rather um, a decision out of Brooklyn out of the Eastern District of New York in early 2016, in which the the judge sided with Apple in holding that the All Writs Act um, did not authorize the government to require Apple to help in a pretty kind of costless way, unlocking an iPhone that Apple had the capability to to unlock um, because Apple was not sufficiently involved in this. It wasn't, you know, it was some dude's iPhone and he was being investigated for a crime and Apple was not involved here. And and companies can change their litigating positions. That's that's fine. It's been five years, right? Um, But it does seem to me that Apple's position here in trying to claim ongoing ownership over the hundreds of millions of Apple iOS devices could have some really unintended consequences in other litigation when it does not want to be held responsible for the actions of its users or for the um, ongoing behavior of its devices. And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to remember, this would have been, I think, before then-Magistrate Judge James Orenstein in in Brooklyn. And I don't remember whether Judge... Judge Orenstein had really strong views about the All Writs Act, which struck me as, I I will concede, quirky. And he was sort of pressuring tech companies to take positions... And I'm not totally sure if that was Apple's organic position or one which Judge Orenstein was sort of strongly pressuring Apple to to take. And so I'm not totally sure we can we can draw draw the comparison there. And and so and so I'm I'm, I'm a little reluctant to kind of play gotcha without without being sure that that was Apple's truly organic position. And Apple actually had decrypted a lot of phones for the government until the San Bernardino case, which became very high high profile. Um, and kind of symbolic of all sorts of things based on kind of the politics of, of the time and the Snowden releases and all that kind of stuff. So there was, it, it was in its own, all of these are kind of in their own little world in terms of what the policy issues are, political issues and business interests of the company. So I'm, I'm, I'm not totally sure. I, I, I'm not going to necessarily see a, a conflict between those two. And, and one more thing. Another thing that they are 
doing in this complaint is attaching the CFAA violation to a violation of the uh, UCL, the unfair, uh, unlawful business practices law in California, in which they're trying to suggest that the defendant's conduct violated the CFAA and that that violation of the CFAA could be used as the linchpin through which to make a violation of the UCL and the UCL grants them a right of action. I don't know, Oren, if you think that that is a, a, a better avenue for, for taking this case forward. I know literally nothing about the UCL, so I have no <laughs> That, I, I think that might make three of us. Um, <laughs> Orrin, to, to your point, I, I mean, I'm not, I think that's, that's, that's fair, the issue about not playing gotcha. And I, that's not really what I'm, I'm interested in, in in this particular case. It's more the question of this position that Apple is taking, while it may be legally useful in this case, and it may be good PR positioning in this case, it does strike me as potentially opening up Apple to a lot more liability and to a lot more obligations with respect to its phones and its devices than it would okay. otherwise be comfortable with. Like it does seem to me that if you're a company, it's it seems quite handy to be able to say, look, we just build these things and send them out to the world and then we wipe our hands of them. And and claiming opposite does strike me as potentially short sighted just from Apple's kind of long term litigating posture position. That that's the kind of question I had. Yeah, I mean I, I... I see that. And I think there may be a little bit of a conflict, although it may be they they win some cases and lose some cases either way. <laughs> and so, you know, that's not necessarily the end of the world if a court then says, no, you're done. You have no control. This isn't your device anymore. They can then use those cases in the other setting. And, and, and it may be that it's still useful for them to file suit now, even if they end up losing that that loss may actually not be so terrible for them. And I think it's just probably, you know, I, I can imagine from a business standpoint, just pros and cons, but I don't know. I'm, I, I can't speculate about how Apple sees that playing out. But I think I think fair, fair point that it may be that there are kind of echoes of conflict between their, their different positions because it'll Apple is going to be litigating in lots and lots of different settings. And so I'm sure they've thought through kind of how, how it might play out in, in different ways in those cases. So let, let, let's zoom out from the complaint and talk about this broader question that I know, Asaf, you've done a lot of thinking about, about how we as a society, whether on the domestic level or the international level, how we build out norms, both legal and non-legal about cybersecurity. And it does seem that for better or for worse, a lot of the norm building is going to come as a result of one-off litigations with their own facts, in their own courts, with their own sets of national laws. And I'm curious if you think that's a good way of doing it, a bad way of doing it, a imperfect but second best way of doing it. Yeah, I, I think that the problem is that we focus so much of our litigation over a couple of boogeymans and in so doing kind of focus on a tree and miss the forest. The environment in which these activities are ongoing involve not just companies that operate, say, in Israel. Uh, there are companies that operate in countries where there's even less regulation than Israel. There are government-sponsored trade and surveillance tech over which there won't be an ability to sue because of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And so to the extent to which one-off litigation against a, a market leader, for sure, like NSO Group, actually creates a deterrence effect on other companies in this space is 
confusing at best and I think merits a conversation about what other solutions, uh, regulatory and otherwise, uh, can we put forward to advance the discourse here. And that involves both what the U.S. did in its sanctions on the NSO group, which uh, certainly signaled that we will, even for our biggest allies, be willing to designate companies that go too far off into these no trade with lists, but it also involves international rulemaking. And in that regard, there's a, a regime called the Wassenaar Arrangement that is supposed to set export controls on these kinds of surveillance tools. But it's a voluntary regime. It's an application in the context of these dual use technologies has been uh, problematic. And so there's ongoing debates about how do we move forward in regulating this space and how are we introducing uh, more forceful obligations on states to regulate these companies and control their businesses better. And what also what ethical standards do these companies adhere to to ensure that these things don't happen, taking into account that we are not likely to lose the continued uh, market viability of surveillance tech. And so the question is just how do we regulate it better because moratoriums are unlikely to be practical in the long run. Oren, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on this, and in particular, your perspective on the use of 1030 and its its civil side. You know, I, I think like many of us who teach this, we focus sort of more on the, the criminal side of 1030. It's certainly what I focused on when I was at the Department of Justice. But a lot of 1030 litigation is civil. And, you know, whether through changing the behavior of regulated entities or just through creating of norms, it does have a big effect. Uh, and so in your study of 1030 and your tracking of this over the years, do you get the sense that regulation by 1030 has done a you know good job, okay job or bad job? I mean, I think the civil liability in Section 1030 has in general been a problem because it's encouraged courts to adopt super broad interpretations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because when judges are in the mindset of regulating businesses, they have sort of really different assumptions about the role of the law than when they're in the business of punishing individuals. So you ended up with a criminal statute that was interpreted primarily in the civil setting with really broad interpretations that then applied in the criminal setting with all sorts of problematic outcomes. Now, it's different post this June, I guess it was, when Van Buren versus United States came out, the first Supreme Court decision on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which cuts back liability under uh, Section 1030, at least, you know, it's not clear, but at at least in some significant way. And so now I think probably you're going to see less of a role for civil Section 1030 cases, more focus on kind of the traditional core hacking disputes and and less kind of like, hey, you visited my website. I didn't want you to do that kind of cases, which we used to see in droves. I I do think there's also an important trend here. And this goes back, uh, Alan, to your point about the San Bernardino case or the Apple's earlier litigation, you know, the the rise of the market in hacking tools has changed some of these cybersecurity debates from where they were five or 10 years ago. Whereas with the San Bernardino case, it was like, oh, you want to get into Apple products. The only way to do it is through Apple. And now it's like, oh, yeah, why would you bother going through Apple? You just hire some company to hack in. And, and you know, of course, that's what ended up settling the San Bernardino case when the government was able to buy an intrusion into that device and, and withdrew its case for 
Apple to help, but the, the market in hacking tools has become just a really big part of this picture. And I suspect will continue to be a big part of the picture. And the law to some extent is playing a lesser role because it's these devices that, that are playing a bigger role. And especially when they can be based in companies outside the United States and used outside the United States, used in secret, you're going to have a lot of use of them, no matter what the law says. And it's, but it's also why the the law, as it currently stands, doesn't set an analytical framework that would allow you to take into account the broad share of factors and considerations that go into devising cybersecurity policies on a national level. And I think that part of the problem is that to the extent that Apple is really aiming to set norms about how to curb the abuse of state-sponsored spyware through the courts in this way, they will not be able to provide a full narrative that other better positioned institutions, say the executive, the legislator, could have in front of them in kind of developing norms that could be future-proof and take into account uh, broader national security and foreign policy considerations. So I, I understand that, again, this serves particular PR purposes, and they're definitely, you know, in the wake of the Ninth Circuit decision, they're joining a bandwagon that seems successful so far. The, at the same time, this cannot be the only avenue through which we develop future norms in this space. So let, let me close then our discussion with this issue of the broader surveillance technology ecosystem. I, I have been tracking this issue for for a long time. You know, I did this in the government. I've been doing this as an academic. And one of the kind of pervasive ironies that I have felt and noticed throughout this time is that companies like Apple seem to want to have it both ways, which is to say that they want, on the one hand, to resist calls for building in third-party access, what's sometimes called backdoors, because they argue not without merit, to be clear. Um, they argue that this will weaken their products and it'll be bad for user security. And one of the arguments that they make quite frequently, and they made this in the San Bernardino case, uh, as you, Orrin, pointed out, and this is how it was resolved, is that, look, there are so many vulnerabilities already that you don't need us to build more into our systems for you, the government, to get access. Just use the existing ones. But then when that's exactly what people do, like NSO Group or the governments that use NSO group solutions, Apple then turns around and says, how dare you hack our systems? And so you know, one might say, well, Apple is objecting to the use of NSO by you know, bad actors, bad governments. But if you read the complaint, nothing really, I mean, the nature of the 1030 violation is just that NSO group is hacking Apple devices, not that NSO is hacking Apple devices on behalf of particularly bad actors. So am I being unfair against Apple here? Or, or is there really a kind of internal inconsistency and one might even call hypocrisy on a less charitable day here? I'm happy to go first. I, I do think that there is an hypocrisy here. Um, in, fa I, in fact, the, the words they use to describe that NSO's product is destructive. It's a destructive product. And they're saying that about all hacking tools, all surveillance uh, for hire solutions. And I think they don't want to position themselves 
in actually engaging the discussion about how should law enforcement run its business in a digital environment without relying on Apple for support to create backdoors. They kind of feel that they can have their cake and eat it too in this way. I think what it forces us to do, though, and what I think this litigation demonstrates is precisely why we need to reconceptualize how do we privatize espionage and in particular the revolving door relationship between the intelligence community and private surveillance tech companies? And how do we regulate vulnerability equities processes when done by private companies as opposed to the government? How do we regulate human rights impact assessments on the part of these companies when they market their products to new clients, uh, as well as various kinds of licensing, client management, client termination questions that relate to this industry, taking into account that I think as Apple is refusing to admit in its litigation, but I assume in closed doors will admit, this market is not going to go away. And it serves Apple that this market is there because it takes the pressure off of Apple to support these governments when there's a real criminal issue. Uh, So that's what is at hand here. It's um, forcing us to engage with regulatory questions that we've evaded addressing up until now. And I actually don't think Apple is being hypocritical because you can you can kind of reconcile their various views, I think, by saying in the world of Apple, there's the good guys, the U.S. government, the bad guys, which is people who hire private, you know, private companies from bad governments or bad people to do hacking. And you can say, hey, we think as a practical matter, the good guys, the U.S. government has means of getting into devices and we think the market used by bad guys hiring these companies is bad. And so you, you can reconcile it. I mean, at the same time, I don't think you'd ever expect a private company, publicly traded, you know, for-profit company to have a consistent, coherent cybersecurity policy, right? They're, they're, they're in the business of making money for, for, their, for their stockholders and, and everything. They're, they're not trying to set policy. I mean, I, and, and the whole idea of companies like, you know, taking these grand views of we have this. I don't know. I, I, I understand why they say that, but I, I've never expected private companies to um, come up with anything particularly grand. So I think they're being consistent, but totally understandable that they would be ultimately focused on what is going to help them as a company. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. So just using your example, uh, Oren, is Celebrite the company that helped the government at the end break the San Bernardino phones, a good company or a bad company? Is its product a destructive product or not a destructive product? The litigation would seem to suggest that this is a destructive product by a bad company, but when they work with the U.S. government, that somehow, and and kind of relieve the pressure on Apple, that somehow is a good thing, that is totally fine. Well, my recollection from Apple's briefing, and this is going back six years in their San Bernardino filing, was that they said the NSA could get into our phones, go to the NSA. (laughs) And so they didn't say, you can go buy this stuff, go buy it, Um, although (laughs) that's what the government did. Um, And so I think I think, you know, Apple doesn't need to have necessarily taken a position on that on that question. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I agree that, you know, the reality of the private market is really it's here to stay and it plays a big role in this and it. It helps Apple in some ways. It hurts Apple in some ways. It's kind of, it's all a mixed bag. It's just a, it's a different conversation, I think, than we thought we were going to be having and that we were having six years ago during the San Bernardino case, where the big focus was on like, you know, can you make Apple 
help you where it was presented as being like, well, if 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 Apple has to be, you know, come up with this source code, it's the end of the world for privacy. And now it's like, oh yeah, never mind. They could just go buy this <laughs> some private company. Never mind. Scratch all of that. Um, and so we we've, we've really moved on in conversation. I just think it's important to recognize. Well, this is uh, clearly a conversation we're going to be having for a long time, and I look forward to continuing to have it with both of you. Um, but I think we'll leave it there for today. So thank you very much, Oren and Asaf. Thank you Thanks so for much. for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya-Howell. Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.